we are in a recovery. And I think it would be a mistake to say the September numbers alter that significantly. It is true, the last couple of weeks, that some of the numbers that are coming in have been a little bit soft. But this is what a recovery looks like. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Monday, October 5th. That was former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan. Do you know, they used to call him Uncle Alan. Some people call him Uncle Alan. Really? Yeah. You I do? That, but not, not, not me. But um, Anyway, he was talking about uh, the September unemployment numbers. On the show today, we are going to make sense of one of the most confusing, most frustrating parts of the healthcare world. And it is that part where you get home and you go to the mailbox and there's a bill there from the insurance company for your doctor's visit. Right, and then you cry. Really? You cried? I have I have wept many times, David, receiving medical bills. I can see getting angry, but okay. All right, do you have a weepy one there? I have one right here. I brought it in for our indicator today, and I'm just going to, it's complicated and really long. I'm going to choose one line from it. It is our indicator, $2,665. That is the amount that my husband was charged on this bill for a CT scan of his neck. It's not cheap. No. And the thing is, David, that is not all that we paid for that scan. So so this bill, this is from, I'm just going to tell a shortened version of this story because I can talk about it a lot. My husband goes to the emergency room. It turns out after an afternoon there that he has this rare lung thing we found out from our time there. And while we were there, he got a CT and he got x-rays. And a few weeks later, we get this bill, the one that I just read to you. The total was $5,833 and the CT as you can tell, is one of the most expensive things on here. Um, And at the time, we had a high deductible, so it was a pretty sad day when we opened this bill. But we got on this plan to pay it over time. We sorted it out, and we thought that we were done. But you weren't done? Right. And then we got another bill, and it's a bill for x-rays and for the CT scan. But you just said you just paid for a CT scan. Right. Well, we thought we had paid for the CT scan, but apparently... This bill was just for the physician's services related to the CT and the x-rays. So that $2,665, that was just for the CT, for the use of the equipment or whatever. The bill was for the physician's fees for assessing the images. You should come to me. I can do it for you a lot cheaper. I'm not finished. Then, another (laughs) week, we get another bill. And this is for lab work. So this is all from the same one visit to one place. Okay, anyway, I I said I was going to do a short version, so I'm getting all worked up about this. The point is that we're talking about a lot of money, a really big expense, and a big expense for something that's incredibly confusing to figure out what we are actually paying for. And we've actually been hearing a lot of stories like this. Basically, ever since we started reporting on health care, we've been getting emails about people's medical bills, stories and questions, tons and tons of questions. Right. And a lot of actually really similar questions. So we figured we would take some time to just answer them. And we asked Joseph Newhouse to step into a studio to help us do that. He is a professor of health policy at Harvard. He's also on the board of directors at Aetna. And his first question comes from Travis Fisher. Travis writes... 
This is something I've wondered about for a long time. Whenever I get a statement from my insurance company that shows what the insurance was charged and what the insurance paid, the difference is quite large. For instance, my son just had ear tubes put in, and I saw the bill the hospital charged my insurance company. The bill was for $1,200. But then there's this column that says amount paid, and it only shows $400. We already used up the deductible for my son, so I'm not on the hook for any of this. The bill says so. It says patient responsibility zero. So what happened to the rest of the money? Who's paying the rest of the money? What happens to that? That's what we asked Joseph Newhouse. $1,200 is in the the lingo of hospitals and insurance companies, something called a charge. And the way to think about that is the what you see as the sticker price of a new car in a car dealer showroom. But very few people pay the sticker price of a new car, and probably even fewer people pay a uh, Charges. So what's happened here is that your insurance company will have negotiated a rate with the hospital for this service, which in this case is $400, and that's what they paid, and the hospital agreed to take the $400 as payment in full. Now, if somebody had come along, uh, say, uh, an Arab sheik, and wanted the same operations, didn't have, wasn't insured by an American insurance company, the hospital in principle would have charged that person $1,200. But most people that fall into that category are not an Arab sheik. They are people who don't have insurance, who then get charged the full amount that the hospital billed, that $1,200. That's right. And That's then they a, never pay that money. Most of them don't. But the hospital knows that. So the hospital will often try to work out some kind of arrangement with this person to charge them a lesser amount or give them some kind of payment schedule. Why should that person have to pay $1,200 when the insurance company only has to pay how much? Well, because the insurance company represented a lot of patients, and it potentially could have said, uh, if you don't give us a good rate, we're going to try to use various devices to get our, the people we insure to go to somebody else's hospital. And obviously, the uninsured person can't do that. The insurance company is basically acting on behalf of a lot of people and therefore has That's more power. That's right. You should, you should think of it as a mass buyer that can basically get lower prices. But the, to answer the question, nothing really happened to the other $800 here. It, it is mostly a kind of fictitious uh, charge and certainly doesn't reflect the hospital's cost that it was eating or allegedly eating. So why does the hospital bill $1,200 for Travis's kids' ear tubes when they already know that they've negotiated an amount of $400 with that insurer? That's a very good question, and I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that. But I do know that you know these great long 100-page bills that hospital computers spit out um, – that can itemize every charge from uh, down to the last aspirin, uh, that isn't how most uh, hospital bills are paid. Hannah, so the interesting thing to me about this is that we are, I think one reason this is confusing to us, that we get a bill for some number that no one pays, is because when you go into a coffee shop, like there's the price up there. It's a dollar for the cup of coffee. If you don't have the dollar, 
you don't you don't get the cup of coffee, but it's you don't negotiate. And what this bill is, you should be grateful for getting this confusing bill. It's a little window on what's actually going on behind the scenes, which is that someone starts with some price and then someone negotiates and you end up somewhere in the middle. And usually you just don't get to see this. So you feel lucky. Oh, so I should feel lucky for having this really long bill that makes no sense. That's yeah, what the, <laughs> the lesson is here. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing that I wonder, too, is if the insurer has so much power, as Newhouse is saying, the insurer is this mass buyer, so they have a lot of power to negotiate, why don't they just say, fine, we only want to pay you $10 for those ear tubes? And the answer is that they don't have endless power. They can't just say, hey, we only want to pay 10 bucks for those tubes because, well, they probably cost more than 10 bucks. That wouldn't work. But the hospital, hospital has power also. Yeah, and the hospital can tell the insurer, forget you. We don't want to work with you anymore. You don't pay us enough. And the that's bad for the insurer. The insurer has to go and sell an appealing product to employers. And the insurer wants to be able to say, this product that we're offering you, it's coverage at all these major hospitals in your area, the hospital that you know all your favorite doctors work at. So the insurer maybe doesn't want to pay $1,200 for ear tubes, but they don't want the hospital to walk away and say, "Ah, that's fine. We won't accept your insurance anymore. So you settle somewhere in the middle. All right. Next question. This actually was very similar to yours, Hannah. This is from Dale Borgeson. And Dale writes, a few months ago, I had outpatient hernia repair surgery, and I was in at 8 a.m. I was out by 3 p.m. It went very well. In the following weeks, I received a host of bills and statements, a whole bunch of, you know, surgeon, anesthesiologist, nurse anesthesiologist, um, surgery, PA, hospital. And Dale writes, what struck me is that there are four people whose services were billed separately. So, The first question here is, you know, why is Dale getting so many different bills? That's also a good question. And I think the answer to it is that these various people that are billing Dale view themselves as independent professionals. And for Dale to get one bill, basically there would have to be something like a general contractor or an employer who employed other, in this case, doctors. And doctors have historically resisted that. Uh, They've wanted to be, uh, not uniformly, but traditionally they've wanted to be independent professionals, or many of them have. And that implies that they could bill in their own name. Right. So So, we we think when we go to the hospital that we're going to one place, people work at that place, we're going to get one bill. But actually, that place is is basically just a home for a bunch of different independent contractors. Yes, we do get one bill for things like the nurses at the hospital and the cooks that make the meal in the hospital and the janitors that clean the floors in the hospital. But the doctors will often bill, uh, typically bill independently. It's very common to have a separate bill from a surgeon and from an anesthesiologist. Because they're not necessarily employees of the hospital. No, nor, nor are they employees of each other. Right. Okay, so this lastly, this Dale continues with a second question. So this is Dale who got the four different bills. The thing that occurred to me is that if I had to pay the whole price on my own, how would that work? I wouldn't want to pay the list price. I would think that since I would be paying in cash in advance if necessary, I should get at least the same discount as the insurance company negotiated. Well, this goes back to the insurance company's uh, power. The insurance company has a lot more clout with the hospital and the doctor than 
uh, Dale does as an individual, and maybe Medicare has the ultimate amount of clout because it actually just sets a price and says, if you don't like this, Dr. Smith, you can walk away from it, but very few doctors do that. So I just have one more. This is from Alyssa. She says, I have weird moles and skin cancer runs in my family, so I'm supposed to go to the dermatologist every six months to get them checked. So I make an appointment to see my primary care physician, and she gives me a referral to go to my dermatologist to get the moles checked. This time, one comes back as freaky, according to the pathologist, so I need to have it removed. But a different person in the same office removes moles, so I have to go to the primary care physician again to get another referral, even though the pathologist said, scary, remove this. And since the referrals are only good for a couple months, in six months, I have to go to the primary care physician again in order to get another referral. I have to do this for every specialist I see every time. There's no such thing as a lifetime referral to have a dermatologist check every six months. How is this a good use of resources? I know my time isn't considered a resource to the insurance company, but I'm only paying a $15 copay each time. They're paying a little over 100 for every doctor's visit. Uh, this does sound like a very inefficient use of resources, and many types of insurance plans now, there is not the need for a referral, but I believe this persists because it saves ultimately some money. Now, whether this money that's saved comes because people don't do things that they should be doing from the point of view of their health is just an open question. From an insurance company perspective, what do you think might be happening here? Oh, I think the the idea was that there should be somebody looking over the patient's uh, all of the patient's care to try to make sure they weren't getting uh, too much service. And the nominee for that job was going to be the primary care physician. This was meant to prevent having too much done to this person yes. from being overtreated. That was clearly where the original intent of this. But it, as I say, it introduces a lot of uh, administrative complexity and hassle, as your uh, listeners are reflecting. And undoubtedly, there was some there were some patients who said, uh, it's just too much hassle to go get a referral every time. I'm going to, instead of going in every six months, I'm going to go in every 12 months. And so that saved some money. It may have built up some downstream costs because the patient didn't go in, or worse, it may have built up some bad health events. You know, there's errors in both directions here. You may be, you, you, it prevented some people from going in when that was just fine. It saved some money, and maybe it prevented people from going in when they should have gone in. Hana, that is the that answer totally makes sense, and it is totally frustrating to think that possibly requiring referrals saves money and is also totally annoying. Right. <laughs> I mean, you want someone to be angry at, right? Or you want an easy fix? You want it to be able to be pissed off. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. although this practice is waning some, it, it it's often called the gatekeeper model, and it's. Uh, it's not being used quite as much. But basically, yeah, the idea being that the gatekeeper would be your primary care physician. Somebody would be watching over everything that happens to you so that we can avoid unnecessary medical attention. And unnecessary medical attention, we know that is driving up the cost of healthcare. That is actually one of the few clear things we can point to and say it's a huge part of the problem. So this is what we talked about on the podcast previously, researchers at Dartmouth with the Health Atlas studying treatments all around the United States. And they conclude that we, if we could cut back on unnecessary treatment, we might be able to save up to maybe a third. But the question is, how do you do that? Do you have an insurance company require that you get referrals for everything? Because 
that would that might help, but but at the same time, people hate it. I have actually found it useful, David, just in making sense of all this stuff to try to try to think like an insurance company because there is so much mystery here, and in a lot of ways, you know, we are so many steps separated from them. For most of us, there's money that disappears from our paycheck, and then it gets combined with money from our boss, and then, you know, with all the money from our coworkers' paychecks, and then it gets shipped off to some insurance company, and they do their voodoo, and then the next thing we know, we get some insane bill, like this one. Um, Or we're just, you know, stuck trying to decipher a massive booklet of things that the insurance company does not cover. But every once in a while... You do have these moments where you get to see a little bit from the other side. You understand how the insurance company sees us, how what we do affects them, and how they're very carefully watching what we do. So we have a story for you about that now. It happened to our very own Laura Conaway, and this was back in the 1990s when she was working at a newspaper in Maine. When I first walked in, the place had a very um, kind of old-fashioned, what they call indemnity plan. It was insurance before there was such a thing as an HMO. And it came with a couple of booklets, and you walked in, they handed you these booklets. And I seriously never really understood what how you went to the doctor. I never went to the doctor. That uh, The whole thing just seemed kind of opaque and designed to get you not to use it, basically. So we went along on this, and I always thought, well, that's good. You know, at least if I get hit by a truck, I'll have some means of going to the doctor. And literally, I just put it in my top file drawer, and I never looked at it again. In 1997, the big insurer there in the state decided that they would roll out an HMO plan. And these couple guys came in, and they, they handed out these really handy sheets of exactly what we could get and how we went about getting it. And they just spelled it all right out. You know, if you went to the doctor in network, that'd be $10. If you went to the doctor out of network, that'd be $25 or whatever it was. It was the first time anybody had ever explained to us what that meant. So in Maine, what had happened was the chiropractic lobby, the lobby of chiropractors, was very... Um, powerful. And they had gone to the state legislature and gotten it so that they would be treated the same way as a primary care physician. And that meant that you could go to a chiropractor in the network for $10. And we all thought that just sounded wonderful. So we ran down to this one chiropractor who was about three or four blocks away from the office, and we just basically just started a serial serial rotation. There was no end to how many times you could go to the chiropractor for $10, and for five more dollars, you could get massage therapy because your chiropractor could refer you to massage therapy. So she had somebody right there in the office who was doing massage therapy, and it became sort of a Friday afternoon treat to run down and get your your back cracked and then get yourself rubbed. (laughs) Did you all have back problems? You know, I don't know that I had any more back problems before that than I did after going to the chiropractor for a while. Um, it, it just felt great. Anyway, we went on this way for, you know, in the next year or so, just using this thing like crazy. And the HMO people came back to us and they said, um, you know, we're going to have to raise all your premiums and your deductibles. I don't think that they expected us to make that level of use. They came into your office and said that? Yeah, they just came. You know, you're, you've had that experience, right? Your company comes to you and says, we have to, to change the health plan because it's too expensive or whatever. And they came back to the company and said, you know, we, we, we can't 
keep doing this like this. To me, the thing that's interesting about this is that there's often this disconnect between how you behave and how you use services and your premium because it's like a few steps removed from you. At that moment, did you kind of realize you're like, oh, what we are doing on Friday afternoons when we go to the chiropractor and when we get those massages, somebody has to pay for that. When they came back in and did that, it really felt like free lunch was over. So, David, I should say that after my very leading question there, that Laura made it clear that, you know, she doesn't, no one knows for sure that's why premiums were going up, but they all did have this uh oh kind of feeling. You know, sometimes premiums go up and you have no idea why. And then sometimes you think, oh, maybe I, I do know what's going on here. Uh, what, what I like about that story is it lays out the peril of insurance, which is that it separates you from the money you're spending. So you don't you don't want to be in a situation where you want to use your insurance. I mean, like for cheap massages, it, it would be like me getting insurance for chocolate chip cookies or something. You know, I'd love it, but no one's going to sell it to me because I would just eat a million of them, right? And the uh, premiums would go through the roof. Yeah, so, so insurance is not supposed to be for things like chocolate chip cookies. It's supposed to be for unpredictable stuff. Though sometimes that line is kind of gray. An insurance company can say we're not going to cover massages, but then maybe everyone picks an insurance plan that does cover massages. Uh, poor insurance companies. <laughs> no, poor us with all these complicated bills. Even when I can kind of see the other side of things, I still think there has got to be a better way to do this. All right. Well, thank you to Laura and Joseph Newhouse and all of you who sent us your great questions for helping us add a little light to the darkness. We love hearing what's got you confused, what you're wondering about. The best way to share that is by sending us an email to planetmoney at npr.org. Or you can go to our website, npr.org slash money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. Bye.